So I have this really bad habit of losing things that are pretty important. It's hurt me quite a bit. I've lost my wallet a few times. I've lost, uh, I've lost my keys several times. Uh, but I never expected that it would come back to bite me. I've been pretty, pretty good these past few years until recently. My family and I went to Knott's Berry Farm for a delightful time of merriment, enjoyments, Christmas magic, and maybe a little bit of hot chocolate. I had my van key in my, my pocket right here, this little guy. That little guy fits my van key perfectly. You shove it in there, and it's nice and nestled. It's cozy. I've never had an issue with that ever before until we went to Knott's Berry Farm. Why weren't we at Disneyland, you ask? Well, that's a good question. I wanted Disneyland, but Knott's Berry Farm is like 1 18th the price, so we went to Knott's Berry Farm. As tradition would have it, the first ride you ride at Knott's Berry Farm should be, I heard a few of you mention it, it's Ghost Rider. Not Coast Rider, Ghost Rider. Ghost Rider is the first ride you get because it's one of the most popular, and it's the 100-year-old roller coaster that everybody should enjoy at least once in their lives. You should risk your life and ride the Ghost Rider. And so I took my kids with me to get on this, on this traditional ride. And I thought, no big deal. It's just a normal roller coaster. It jostles you a little bit, but it's a pretty tame roller coaster, no problem whatsoever. So we waited for a long time. We got on the ride eventually, and we had a great time. And then we met up with the girls at Camp Snoopy. And of course, you do what you do at Camp Snoopy. I, I rode the, the airplane with my daughter. It was fantastic. But I remember getting off the airplane, and I do my normal, because so, I lose my things all the time, I'll always do this. One of those things where I'm like, I'm just checking to make sure everything's in my pocket that I have. And when you're a dad, you carry a lot more things. I've thought about getting a fanny pack, but it would cramp my style. I'm not there yet, but I know, I know. I lose things, though, so I have to do this thing. In fact, I have this saying before I walk out the door to my garage. I say this to myself all the time. If you're in my family, you'll notice. I'll walk to the door, and my memory trigger is the doorknob, and I'll say to myself, where's my wife? She knows. What do I say to myself, babe? Keys, wallet, phone. That doesn't, doesn't matter. The order's not the point. The point is, it triggers me to think, do I have my keys? Do I have my wallet? Do I have my phone? Those are the important things. In my so I just, every time I, I say that, automatically. So I'm at, I'm at Knott's Bray Farm, I get off the ride, and I'm doing this, and suddenly it dawns on me. I don't have my van key, the key to the vehicle that we drove here, the only key to the vehicle that we have to get out of here. <laughs> so of course, blood drains from my face, I lose my mind, and I, I, you know, kind of a Hail Mary, babe, did I give you my key by chance? And she's like, no, I, you didn't. I don't, I, don't, I don't have that key. And now I'm flipping out thinking, no, no, what happened to the key? I'm checking all over the place. I'm just trying to jog my memory. And then after hours of deduction, I came to realize I must have lost my key at Ghost Rider. Ghost Rider did me dirty. And my problem was that I underestimated the power of this 100-year-old roller coaster. I didn't think it'd be an issue for me to lose my key. But clearly, this demonic coaster stole my key at some point in the ride. And I don't know about you, but if you know how much the, uh, these expensive little keys, it's, it's a remote start key, so they're like $300. 
And now I'm thinking, how are we going to get home? Are we going to have to call a tow truck? Are we going to make, I don't, I don't know what to do. I'm just, I'm losing it. Two things happen. One, God's grace was revealed in that Kristen's like, oh, I happen to have brought my key. <sighs> we can get home. And the second thing happened. I ordered more air tags <laughs> because I lose a lot of things. And now I have air tags on everything. I got an air tag in my kids. I got an air tag on my Bible. <laughs> I never found my key. I lost it, and that's because I underestimated Ghostwriter. There are things in the Christian life that you can lose that are going to be a lot more significant if you underestimate them. Specifically, if you lose sight of Jesus as your faithful and merciful high priest, you will lose more than just your ride home. You will lose your confidence. You will lose your assurance. You will lose, in, in many ways, for many people, you will lose the fact that you maintain your Christian testimony through the rest of your life. One of the things that I absolutely hate about being a youth pastor is I see students like yourself love Jesus and then leave Jesus. That destroys me. I despise that with a white-hot passion. What's the hottest color in the world? Whatever that color is, that's the color that describes the passion of which I hate that dynamic. And so one of the things that you need to know that's going to help you endure through the Christian faith, which is partly why the book of Hebrews is written, is how to keep your eyes on Jesus. This whole series is called Jesus is Better. And if you understand and realize what that means and how that implicates your entire life, you will stay a Christian. You will not only want to become one if you're understanding who he is, you will stay a Christian because you will see how precious, how beautiful, how amazing the God-man Christ Jesus truly is. There are certain things you cannot lose in the Christian life, lest you lose yourself. You must not lose your eye toward Jesus. You must keep your eyes firmly fixed on him. You must keep your heart firmly committed to him. And tonight, you must understand what it means that he is your merciful and faithful high priest. So join me back in Hebrews chapter 2, and we're going to look at a few verses that carry on from the last section we looked at a few weeks ago. In uh, chapter 2, the last verse that we looked at said this. Uh, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9, it says that we... Uh, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. That's an important piece of the puzzle here because this is introducing us to the nature of Jesus' death. And this is a complicated conversation because it introduces some very deep theology that's hard to wrap your head around, but still super important for us to understand the full weight of what Jesus did for us. So verse 9, keep verse 9 in your head as we now enter into verse 10. Verse 10, excuse me, verse 9, you see it there. I just pointed it out to you. Verse 9, the key phrase here is, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. This is where our passage picks up. It's now picking up on the concept of Jesus' death and its effect. Here's what happened. Verse 10 says this, for it was fitting, it was appropriate, it was right that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. And I know that there's a lot of pronouns there and a lot of references that may be a bit confusing. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to read through this passage and then I'm going to give you parentheses to show you who's being referred to in, the, in these verses. Let's continue on at verse 11, and I'll explain what we're looking at here. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source, one family, one genetic code. 
That is why he, Jesus, is not ashamed to call them, believers, brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your, excuse me, uh, verse 12, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, the, the author quotes, I will put my trust in him, God the Father. And again, the author quotes, Behold, I and the children God has given me. This is Jesus talking. Okay, so let me highlight for you the parties that are involved in this text. You'll notice I have three highlights here. One says God, that's in green. One says Jesus in yellow. And one says the sons, which is in blue. Now, here's another fact that you should understand before we, before we unpack this a little more. Uh, when the Bible refers to sons, you know that the Bible often is referring to both sons and... That's right. The Bible does talk in categories uh, that refer to all of us, even though it kind of narrowly defines it. So again, uh, if you're a girl, sons of God refers to you. And if you feel offended, remember, the boys, the sons of God, are also referred to as the bride of Christ. We're both offended now, okay? We good? <laughs> okay. For it was fitting that God, for whom and by whom all things exist... Now, you need to know that what's happening here is the author of Hebrews is making a slight pivot here. He's saying, look, God sent Jesus to die, to taste death for everybody. And he says, it was fitting that God the Father, for whom and by whom all things exist, parenthetical, in bringing many sons to glory. That's his, that's his objective. That's what he's trying to do. Or not trying to do. That's what he's going to do. In bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation, Jesus, perfect through suffering. Okay, the term perfect through suffering, we're going to come back to in a few moments. But just in your head, know that it doesn't mean that something was wrong with Jesus, that he needed to be improved upon in order for him to be an acceptable Savior. That's not what's happening here. I'll explain that to you in a second. But just understand, God, sends, uh, God decides it's fitting to send Jesus to suffer on behalf of the sons, uh, the sons of glory. The sons of glory. Okay, verse 11. For Jesus, who sanctifies and those who are sanctified, that's us, the sons of glory, all have one source. And the text seems to suggest that that source is likely God the Father. I think that's what's happening here. The interesting thing in the translation is that in the, the Greek text, when it says here that they all have one source, the word source is not in the original language. It says that they're all one. Um, and so it seems to suggest here that we're talking about their one originating starting place, namely God the Father. So you still tracking? The author says, God saw fit to send Jesus to suffer on behalf of you all. And that was a good thing. And the reason Jesus is willing to do that for you all is because we and him all have our source in the Father. Now, if you don't have Trinitarian language, you didn't understand God the Father and God the Son and God the Spirit are all one one essence, one God, three persons, three persons. Okay, Father sends Jesus. Jesus dies on our behalf. Jesus says, it's good for me to do this because we all share the same originating source that is God the Father. He continues to build on this theology here. All have one source. This is why Jesus is not ashamed to call them, us, brothers. Why? Because we all come from the same source. It's God the Father who determines to save us. Jesus affects the salvation by his life, death, and his resurrection by the power of the Spirit. Tracking with me here? I know I'm saying a lot, but there's a lot happening in this text that you need to untangle. Are, are you, give me a thumbs up, you tracking? You understanding what I'm saying? Kind of, sort of? 
Okay, I'm not seeing very many thumbs up. You guys know I can see you, right? It's not TV. I can see you. Okay, thank you. I see your hand. I see that. Okay. Father sends Jesus. Jesus dies for us. Jesus is like, hey, I'm, I'm down for this because I love these people. They're my brothers and my sisters. And so the author of Hebrews now quotes the Old Testament on behalf of Jesus, saying, I will tell of your name, God's name, to my brothers, my sons and the daughters. In the midst of the congregation, the sons and daughters of God, I will sing your praise. He quotes again. I will put my trust in him, God the Father. And this is, Jesus has to trust him because he's going to die on our behalf. And again, behold, I and the children, the sons and daughters, God has given me. I know he mixes the analogy there from brothers and sisters to now sons, but he's still making the same point. Jesus is essentially celebrating the fact that he's obeying the will of God on your behalf for your good. And therefore, Jesus is by no means ashamed to call you his brothers and his sisters. You're his people because God the Father has sent him to die on your behalf. Okay, with all of that What's happening here in this book is that the author is trying to unpack for us why Jesus had to die and had to die the way he did. So let's just start with that point. Number one, know why Jesus had to suffer and die. And you've already, if you're tracking what I was trying to com communicate up here, you'll know that the reason why is because of you. But that's not the only reason, and it's not the primary reason. Jesus does not suffer and die primarily to save you. Ooh, provocative. Okay. If you were to ask me what my favorite sock is, I would tell you that my favorite sock is a certain brand. And that brand is, you guys know? Stance. All day, every day. Now, I used to love stance before. They feel good. They got their butter blend. They got great designs. They're comfortable around your foot. Your toes just feel like all the sweat just soaked up in your socks so effectively. I love Stance. But then I found out something even more amazing about Stance. Do you know that they have this thing called Infinite? It's their Infinite, and they spell it cutely. It's N-I-T, K-N-I-T rather. Infa, K-N-I-T, Infinite. Okay, some of you guys don't get that. <laughs> they have their Infinite Guarantee which says if you get a hole in your sock, you can take a picture of it, take a picture of the infinite logo, and they'll give you a free pair in return. And I'm like, that's the most amazing deal in socks ever. I buy one pair of socks, I wear them out, and then I take a picture, they send me another pair of socks and replace it. I spend $20 for a pair of socks, and I get socks for life. I'm excited about that. I love that. So I bought more stands the last few days just to make sure I had plenty of infinite socks so I can get the best deal on the market. I've now saved a ton of money by never having to buy socks again. That's the way I see that. Now, I'm an evangelist for stand socks. You talk to me about socks after the service, you're like, Pastor Rod, the golden toe sock by Hanes is the best. And I'm gonna say, no way, you're out of your mind. And I'm gonna talk all day about why stance infinite is superior in every way possible. You need to be as fluid and as persuasive with understanding the nature of who Jesus is, being able to defend why Jesus is who he says he is and why he had to die the way he said he did. Why? Uh, people are going to ask you this. Here's, here's a question I've gotten before. If God can do anything, why did he not just forgive people instead of committing cosmic child abuse and crushing Jesus and pouring out all his wrath upon Jesus when he could have just said, I forgive you? I accept you. I, I embrace you, whatever, whatever terminology you want to use. Why did God have to do that if he could do anything? 
Your job is to say, no, the gold toe is not superior. Let me tell you why Stan's is better. Let me tell you why what God did is infinitely better than what you're suggesting. You have to learn to defend why Jesus had to suffer and die. Let me just give you three quick reasons from the text at why this is. First of all, Jesus did this primarily to glorify his Father. This is the primary purpose for all of human life, all of human existence. Verse 10, it was fitting that he, Jesus, excuse me, it was fitting that he, God the Father, for whom and by whom all things exist. The, the critical phrase there for you to hear is, for whom all things exist including Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. That all is included. Everything in this life is about God and his glory and his honor. Everything in all of our created universe, and uncreated or unseen universe, that is, is all for the glory of God. And that was the primary reason Jesus had to suffer and die. Jesus would give greater glory to God the Father by dying a bloody and gruesome death. Now think about this. What aspect of God's nature is highlighted by Jesus' suffer, suffering and death? If you said justice, you'd be right. But if you said love, you would also be right. Now, God's justice and his love can be seen in a variety of ways, but it is most prominently, most elegantly seen in the fact that he was willing to say, I need, must satisfy my justice and in the same breath say, and yet I want to love the very people that don't deserve my, my love. They deserve my justice. How do I reconcile my love and my justice? God reconciles it by sending Jesus Christ to live and die in our place. Jesus had to suffer and die in order to glorify his Father, to magnify his beauty, his righteousness, his justice, to magnify his greatness by sending Jesus to die in, in our place. For whom and by whom all things exist. This is a reference to God the Father. My family and I went to Grand, the Grand Canyon this summer. It was the first time I'd ever been. And let me tell you, it is one of the coolest trips you can ever take. I was not disappointed. In fact, the only thing I was disappointed in is that I hadn't scheduled more time for us to stay and explore. And when I saw the canyon walls, the largeness of the canyon is indescribable. Even if I tell you <laughs> and try to describe it, I can tell you that what you see in person defies your human comprehension. It's like this cannot be this big. You look at the canyon walls and they're painted with hues of orange and purple and brown and, and the, 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 the colors are magnificent. But what really strikes you is the contrast of color, depth, and, uh, and magnitude. You see the, the canyon and you realize just how small and even dangerous it feels to be in the presence of something so large and magnificent. But let me tell you this, there are a few times where I have felt more alive and felt more sense of wonder and excitement than in that moment. Because when I realize that I am a small player in the massive universe of largeness, that edified me. It did not minimize me. It did not destroy me. It, it excited me. It enlivened me because I knew that even though I'm a small player in this grand scheme of the universe, that largeness pointed to something, no, someone infinitely greater. And I loved and reveled in my smallness. God made the entire universe to be an evangelistic poster to say, look, this is all about me. 
This is all about the glory of God, not you. And for some of us, that might feel a bit demeaning and demoralizing, like, oh, you know, I'm just this insignificant, you know, little peabody human. That's not the way God designed you to feel. God designed you to feel small that you might recognize and glorify his bigness. God designed you to recognize your insignificance, not so you can bash yourself and be like, I'm just a big idiot, to, to really, though, to let you see with greater clarity his contrasting glory, grandeur, and majesty. That's a good thing. You are made for God's glory. Jesus died for God the Father's glory. And that's this whole thing here. Jesus had to suffer and die to glorify his Father. But that's not all of it here. He did this also to accomplish his Father's will. He did this uh, to bring many sons to glory. You, you, you heard me read this earlier. He did this to bring many sons and daughters to glory which is God's purpose and his will behind everything that he does. He's bringing about his glory through the salvation of anyone who will turn to him in repentance and faith. This is God's perfect and good will. This is his uh, revealed grandeur on our behalf. God could, have God could have destroyed this. In fact, if you're reading the DDR, you saw God destroy most of humanity only to save eight people on an ark. God could have done that again, and he could have started all over with an, a, new, a new humanity, give his covenant to another people. And yet he preserved us, he's kept us here now in order to magnify himself, accomplishing his Father's will. God's divine design in bringing many sons and daughters to glory is to make you holy that's the idea, the concept of bringing many sons and daughters to glory is that in making you a Christian, God is redeeming your humanity, your spirit to reflect his glory. And the way that you do that is by walking as he walked, by being obedient as Christ was obedient. And in that way, as Christ forms you into the image of himself, you reflect more and more the glory of God. This is your design. Jesus died that you might be holy. Jesus died that you would be sanctified. Jesus died so that you would be obedient to the commands of God from the heart by grace through faith. And that was part of the Father's will in sending Jesus to suffer and die. That's one reason he had to suffer and die. Apart from Jesus' death, no good thing you do is acceptable to God. Apart from Jesus' death, no good thing you do is acceptable to God. If Lauren Daniel were to, and let's just suppose she's not a Christian here. Uh, if Lauren Daniel were to see an old lady stuck on a railroad track and she's like, oh no, the train's coming. And so Lauren Daniel runs to go get this poor woman and in the process dislocates her shoulder because she's got this shoulder that's it's pretty weak. <laughs> so she runs to this leg, dislocates her shoulder, and as she's running, she trips and she breaks her leg. And so now she's, she's limping over this lady and trying to go get her. And then at the very last moment, Lauren sacrificially throws herself in front of this lady, <laughs> knocking her out of the way. The, the train just smashes her to pieces. And now her, her head fell off and her body splattered all over the place. And now, as I kneel down to her head, I say, Lauren, are you okay? <laughs> she doesn't respond <laughs> because she died. <laughs> but in this scenario, Lauren's not a Christian. And even if she did that, that would not be pleasing to God in, a, in an ultimate sense. 
I know that's a weird illustration to make that point. But my point in saying that is, apart from the death of Christ, if we're not in Christ, any good deed done is not acceptable to God. And this is why Jesus had to die for us. He reconciles us to the Father so that when we do good, God is pleased with that because we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Now, one more thing, one more reason Jesus had to suffer and die. He did this to identify with humanity in the fullest solidarity possible. Jesus does this uh, in verses 11 through 13. The author of Hebrews quotes these passages in the Old Testament. Um, He says, look, uh, Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. Jesus is not ashamed to declare the name of the Father to these brothers and sisters that he's adopted into the family. Jesus isn't ashamed to be identified with you. And one of the clearest evidences of that is that Jesus willingly stepped down from deity, entering into humanity, and taking on a new nature. For the first and last time in all of human history, there was a man who was also at the very same time God. That hasn't happened again, and that never will happen, because Jesus alone was able to do that. He did this in order to be someone who could put his arm around you and say, I get it. I'm with you. I'm one of you. I understand this. Jesus isn't ashamed of you, isn't ashamed to do this, for you. So if I could give you one small encouragement from that, you shouldn't be ashamed of him. Jesus isn't ashamed of us, but often we can be ashamed of him when we realize how backward his ethics can be and how countercultural his commands can sound. Even the very fact that he refers to us in the collective audience as sons of God without acknowledgement to the gals can be a bit like, oh man, that's weird. You know, patriarchal Jesus doesn't care about the ladies. No, this is just the way that he's revealed himself in the text of scripture. And by the way, God himself is revealed as a male person. It takes a lot for us to swallow some of the things that Jesus says, and yet Jesus says, I'm not ashamed to call you brothers and sisters. May we not be ashamed to call him our Lord and our master and our savior. Jesus had to suffer and die to glorify his father, to accomplish his father's will, to identify with humanity in fullest solidarity. But there's more, verses 14 through 16. Read with me here, verses 14. Since therefore... The children share in flesh and blood. He himself likewise partook of the same things. The same things in referring to flesh and blood. Since the children share in flesh and blood, he likewise partook of the flesh and blood that through death, he, Jesus, might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through the fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Verse 16 tells us that Jesus didn't die for fallen angels. Pop quiz, a demon is an yeah, an angel, a fallen angel. This says Jesus' death does not cover a fallen angelic realm. So can a fallen angel, a demon, be saved? Well, not according to this. Jesus died for humans, for the children of Abraham, the offspring of Abraham, those who would have faith in him. He died for those, but not angels. Angels are lost for eternity, those that rebelled against him. But the point here is that, look, look what he's done to identify with humanity. It doesn't, he doesn't just say, look, I want to identify with you and put my arm around you and say, look, I'm your bro. I want, I want, to, I want to be here with you. He doesn't just... Uh, He doesn't just want to be friendly. He takes on a whole new nature to himself in order order to live so that he might die. 
It's a profoundly wonderful, beautiful concept. We celebrate it every Christmas. I want you to fathom the wonder of the incarnation. We did talk about this a little bit in, uh, during our Christmas sermon. Slash, it wasn't a Christmas sermon at all. It was our Hebrew sermon, but it was during Christmas time. Uh, well, Pastor Mike teaches on this every year, but I want you to fathom the wonder of the incarnation. Let's try to think afresh of what this is and why it's so powerful. One of, my thing, one of the things I like doing with my kids right now, as we watch movies, I like to help identify themes for them that are patterned after biblical themes. So one of the movies we saw recently was Ron's Gone Wrong. It's on Disney+. Plus. <clears throat> we really enjoyed it. It was really funny, really cute. And I don't want to spoil it for you if you haven't seen it because it's worth an hour and a half or whatever it is that it would take to watch it. Uh, but I highlight it for them. Look, you'll notice that in every great story, a few things happen. The hero will always sacrifice himself in some significant way for others. That happens in almost every heroic story. Even if you go back to the Avengers and Endgame, right? People sacrifice themselves for the good of others. In the best stories, though, it's not just that the hero sacrifices himself for the good of others. What happens in the best stories? Comes back to life. Comes back to life, right? There's a resurrection story. And if you've been following the Matrix trilogy or now, what's a, what's a quad, quadrology? Quadrilateral. The Matrix movies now, <laughs> Matrix Resurrections, is now again, I mean, Neo already resurrected, but now he's resurrecting again in order to highlight the fact that humanity has this deep connection with the hero dying for everybody and then the hero coming back to life. We all have that insane, uh, not insane, inane sense of, yes, there's something good about that. Not insane, inane. <laughs> Um, inner. That's what I'm going for. So I want you to think afresh again about the wonder of the incarnation, how the hero lives and dies for the, the, the people and then comes back to life. Let's take a quick look at this here. I'm going to give you the three points because I'm, I'm, making, I'm not making as much time as I want. So let me just show this to you really quickly here. There's things that are happening and unfolding in this text. Jesus adds humanity to his deity so he could die as the God-man and kill the power of death. Jesus killed death. Interesting phraseology, but that's what's happening here. First, you need to understand this. When Jesus becomes a man, he's not downgrading his deity. Jesus doesn't suddenly lose de deity in any sense as the God-man. What he is doing is adding humanity to his deity, such that when we talk about this, we typically say that he is 100% God and 100% man. But if you're a mathematician, that's going to bother you because it doesn't quite work. What you can say, and I like this clarification by one theologian, he'll say, look, it, he is truly God and truly man. And I like that, but it doesn't feel like it goes far enough because both have to be affirmed. He is God, he is man, and he is both at the same time in fullest measure. Which if you think about this, this means Jesus knew exactly what it was to indwell a human body. Jesus cried as a baby. Jesus had poopy diapers. Jesus, I don't know, I would assume so, had acne. Maybe he had an awkward teenager stage. Never, never sinning. You understand, this is where it gets a little tricky, but never sinning, but still going through the normal human, uh, the normal human cycle of life of having to learn to grow. And in fact, Scripture does affirm Jesus grew in stature and in favor with God and man. He is a real man, a real person, and he adds humanity to his deity. Imagine for a moment you have a pet turkey named Charlie. You love this pet turkey named Charlie. Char-Char and you do everything together. You guys take pictures. You do, you, he has his own Insta because you think he's that cute and adorable. You and Char-Char are BFFs, and it's evident to anyone who knows you. 
when people come over, you want people to see Char Char. And you're like, oh, let's pet Char Char. And, and you just love Char Char to death. It would be as crazy, and I want to, crazy is a strong word. It would be as mind-blowing for you to say, look, I love Char Char so much, Pastor Rod. Thank you for visiting me to come visit my turkey, Char Char. It's, I love him so much. Pastor Rod, thank you for being here to help counsel me through this. I am going to undergo a transition to become a turkey because I want, to, I want to know what it's like to be Char Char. He and I, we're so good. I mean, I want to go like the same way he does. I want to live in the pen. I mean, the little wobbly thing at my neck, I want to play with that. I'm, I'm just going to do it. I would look at you sideways and be like, we need a lot of counseling. Can you come every day for the next 10 years of your life? Let's figure this out. It's crazy, right? And you hear that, you laugh at that because it's like, oh, it's comical. But for, for God to become a man, that's kind of what we're saying, isn't it? We're saying a deity who's all-powerful, all-knowing, all-good decided to enter into this, a body, with not infinite abilities, but finite. Jesus only had two eyes as a human. He still had access to his unlimited knowledge, but he didn't tap into it in his deity. He allowed himself to maintain within a human nature. That's mind-blowing. You think of, you laugh at becoming a, a turkey like Char Char, but at the same time, when Jesus became a man, it was greater than that kind of dynamic. And this one's silly, I get that. But you, you're trying to get what I'm throwing your way? Jesus added humanity to his deity, but it gets worse or better, depending on how you look at it. Jesus added humanity to his deity for the express purpose of dying as a God-man. So it's not just him saying, I want to get to know you and hang out with you. It's, no, I'm going to um, I'm gonna get to the same kind of substance you are so I can die for you, so I can suffer for you. Okay, let's go back to Char-Char. You love Char-Char so much and you forgot, oh, Thanksgiving's coming around. Oh, no, I know what's happening. Char-Char is about to be Char-Char'd. This is not good. <laughs> And so in this conversation that where I'm at your house and I'm trying to counsel you not to do this, you're saying, but Pastor Rod, I want to become a turkey so I can take Char-Char's place. I will let myself be taken to the farmer to be butchered and to be served on someone's table so that Char-Char can go free. It would be noble, but it would still be dumb. <laughs> and I would not advise you to do that. But that again is, again, what's happening here. God becomes man so he could take our place and suffer and die so that you don't have to. Now, again, strange turkey illustration, but you get my point. God becoming man is greater than us becoming turkey. God becoming man is better, I hope you agree with that, than us becoming turkey. Jesus became a man so he could die for us as the God-man, the perfect sacrifice of God. And that is wonderful and amazing, and we should glory in that reality. One more layer to this. Imagine now Char-Char is you're, you're afraid for his life. And so you say, okay, I'm going to take Char-Char's place. And then when Farmer John comes to pick me up, I'm going to destroy the turkey plant. So he takes you into the turkey place where they take the turkey and take off his feathers and do all the things that they do to process him. When he puts you in the turkey holding facility, you blow up the whole place. And now the turkey plant is destroyed and all the other turkeys herald you as the hero turkey to be the, the head of all turkeys. That's what Jesus did. <laughs> different, but the same. Jesus became a man. I didn't get as much prep for this sermon as I wanted to. Jesus became a man so he could take our place and in the process destroy the very mechanism that destroyed us. 
It destroys the devil, Farmer John, and the factory, death, that would take us out. It's, <laughs> please forgive the silly illustration. I just thought it would, it would resonate. It didn't work as well as I hoped it would, but Jesus added humanity to his deity. So for the, for, for the purpose of dying and suffering as the God-man in order to kill the power of death, to destroy the devil and his, his power, his foothold over death. And we're going to talk a lot more about death this weekend. I hope you're going to join us for that. But just know that's where we're going. This is why Jesus is amazing. We should fathom that with wonder, with glory, and celebrate that. And if we thought more about this and understood the lengths to which Jesus went to save us, I think we would worship more. I think we would love him more. I mean, I, no, not I think. I know for a fact that if you thought and contemplated this more often, you you would love Jesus more fervently. The more you contemplate and consider what he's done for you, let that resonate deeply in your soul. You're going to respond. There's no way you cannot. Think about who Jesus is and what he's done for you. Don't lose that key about what Jesus has accomplished on your behalf and why that's the most amazing thing in the world. Verses 17 and 18, as we land our plane here, these last two verses uh, summarize this entire section and prepare us for the next one, which we'll come back to in a couple weeks. Verses 17 and 18. Therefore, Jesus had to be made like his brothers and sisters in every respect. This is the reason he had to become human, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation, to atone for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Jesus had to become human in order to be able to die in our place as a substitute on our behalf. He couldn't come as a unicorn. He couldn't come as a goat or a lamb. He had to come as a people, a person, in order that he would be able to substitute his body, his life for us so that we would be acceptable. But you'll notice here, it says that he does this in service to God. This goes back to my first point. This is all about the glory of God, not us. And yet he still renders this as an act of love toward us because of his love for the, for the Father. He now is, be, because of who he is, he now is a merciful and faithful high priest. He's been there. He's done that. He knows what it is to be human. And now because of that, he can relate to you. He's approachable. He becomes your judge, ultimately, if you're not right with him, but because he is judge and justifier, he is now saying, come to me, talk to me. Don't run from me, don't deny me, come to me and let me heal you, let me care for you, let me shepherd you. Essentially, point number three, we need to draw near to Jesus. That can be scary. I read a story last year about an owner I don't know why people do this, but okay, people still do this. They'll, they'll buy wild animals and think, I can, I can domesticate them and, you know, Skippy is going to be a great friend. We're going to, you know, ride off into the sunset. This particular owner owned two white lionesses, beautiful cats, beautiful cats. Um, this 68-year-old guy, West Matthewson, <laughs> goes to their cage to hang out with them as he normally does. And these two white lionesses decide, you know what? He looks tasty. They attack him. And of course, they maul him to death. West is, West's life is over. And of course, uh, I'm going to encourage you and everyone else not to try to tame a, a wild animal because it never works out in your favor. Now, <coughs> excuse me, COVID. If, <coughs> for some of us, we can in some ways, fear drawing near to God because we know God is not domesticated. 
God is a scary God. He's holy, he's righteous, and we're not. Drawing near to him can feel like uh, entering the presence of a very powerful, wild, scary animal. And yet, Jesus invites us, saying, look, I've dealt with the issue that you're afraid of. You're afraid of judgment. You're afraid of shame and condemnation. I've dealt with that. My death has finished that. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come to me. I'm a merciful high priest. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not angry at sin any longer because my death on the cross has satisfied God's righteous wrath. Therefore, come. Come. Draw near to me. This year, 2022, Jesus wants you to draw near to him. Now, hear me, though. I'm not saying Jesus is necessarily a safe deity. Jesus is still holy and righteous, and he might discipline you. There's pain in that. But Jesus does invite you. Look, if you're one of his kids, come. If you're not his kid, come in repentance and faith, and he will accept you. Chronicles of Narnia, famous part of the story where Lucy's talking to Mr. Beaver, and, and Lucy says, oh, is, is Aslan the lion safe? And Mr. Beaver says, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he's not safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. That's what the beaver said. He's good. Jesus is not safe. He's more dangerous than a wild animal, but he's good. And because of what he's done for you, you ought to draw near to him. The God that would transcend time and space in order to die in your place deserves your attention. Just like you would expect Char-Char to be grateful to you if you became a turkey and lived and died in his place and destroyed Farmer John's farm, he would, you would expect Char-Char to care for you and to respond to you and to love you and to give you praise and adoration. Again, silly illustration. Jesus wants you to draw near. Jesus died so that you can draw near. Jesus died so that you would be able to connect with God in new and profound ways. To draw near to Jesus, first of all, because he's approachable. He's a merciful high priest. He, uh, one of the things that I hear sometimes is like Christians could be judgy. You know, like, oh, you guys are so judgy. You're just talking about people and you're, you know, calling this person a sinner and that person a sinner. Look, we can never apologize for the fact that we call sin, sin. That's, that's what God calls us to do. And that's never going to be popular for anybody. That's fine. But he, what we're talking about here, when we say that Jesus is approachable, we're saying, look, he doesn't... Um, he doesn't play nice with sin, and that's like, oh, no big deal. He does welcome you as you are, but he doesn't want you to stay as you are. Jesus wants you to draw near to him, knowing that he is the one who can satisfy your deepest yearnings and quench the wrath of God on your behalf. Often, the last thing you want to do after you sin is go to Jesus in prayer. But really, student, it is the first thing you should do every single time. Draw near to Jesus because he's approachable. He's also reliable. He's called a faithful high priest. He's a merciful and faithful high priest. Jesus is going to do what is right and good. And Jesus is the friend that sticks closer than a brother. Jesus is the one who will never leave you or betray you. Jesus is the one in your life who you can depend upon never to stab you in the back. You guys have friends here right now that you love and care about. But I guarantee you, before the year is done, many of you are going to have a fight about something. You're going to be like, oh, you talked about me to so-and-so. I confided in you about this thing. You're going to feel hurt and betrayed. You're going to want to say, I never want to talk to you again. And you're going to have relational conflict. Jesus is someone you will never have relational conflict. Well, you're going to have conflict. You can never charge him with sin. He will always do what is right and good on your behalf. He is the friend that sticks closer than a brother. He will do good. He is reliable. One more thing, if you think about his reliability and his approachability, there's also one more element to his help that he offers, the reason that he wants you to draw near. He is also credible. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Going back to the earlier section in Hebrews where it says that he was made perfect through suffering. Let me, let me try to make a 
an attempt at explaining that. When Jesus is made perfect through his suffering, I think what's happening is that we should read that in light of verse 19, excuse me, 18. You want to read that in light of verse 18. So Hebrews 2.10 and Hebrews 2.18, I think, go together. When Jesus goes to the cross, when he lives his life in suffering on your behalf, God does this for a strategic purpose. Because think about this. Jesus could have been sent to earth as a 33-year-old man to go immediately to the cross and die because he would be perfect, right? There'd be no problem with that. Except God the Father saw fit to make Jesus live an entire life, 33 years, in order to, as the text says here, to suffer, to go through the pains of being human. And so not only does he, uh, does he acquire righteousness through his life, and not only does he conquer sin the whole way through, but he suffers in order to identify with us. And now when you go to Jesus, it's not like, oh, this guy's unapproachable. He's, he's not reliable. He's just this out there God. He is incredibly credible. Incredibly credible. He's a credible God because he's been there. He's done that. He's lived through the suffering of his humanity. His being made perfect through suffering essentially is God saying, Jesus is a perfectly suitable Savior because he suffered. He knows what it is to be human, and he's crushed it. He's done well. Jesus did perfectly. He is now a perfectly suitable Savior. I think the implication, then, is that he would be less suitable as a Savior to us if he had just been beamed down from heaven, went to the cross immediately five minutes later, and then three days later rose from the dead. He would be less suitable for us because we would say, I can't relate to you. I don't understand what that, you don't know what my life is like, but Jesus now does. He lives a full life. He is a perfectly suitable Savior. He's made perfect through suffering. His suffering is what gives him credibility. He is perfect in that he is perfectly good, perfectly suitable for us. I don't know if I explained that very well, but Jesus is a human who's been there. He knows how to crush it. He wants you to draw near to him because he can provide help when we ourselves are being tempted. Jesus is better. That's really the point of this, this sermon series. And I want you to see that when you spend time reflecting, meditating on the fact that Jesus is your faithful and merciful high priest, there is a richness in your spiritual life that can be had. I was talking to someone not too long ago who was struggling with a, with a relationship. And I commented to them that you know, our relationships, all of human relationships, at some point they drop off in their ease. It's like, oh, it's easy to be friends with you until you start to get to know them better and better and better. Someone once said that human beings are like porcupines. The closer we get, the more we prickle each other, the more we end up, you know, hurting. And that's true. But the corollary to that is that when we push past that prickly nature that we are all built with and we push past the difficulty of relationship to pursue a deeper relationship with somebody, it is better than what it was before. Your relationships are only ever as good as the work that you put into them. And that's no different than your relationship with Christ. Understand that he's your faithful and merciful high priest, but understand he's also so much more and he can be more. And in 2022, you should aim to pursue him more deeply and more profoundly. As we land the plane tonight, let me encourage you once more to please, if you haven't already signed up for Revival Winter Edition, I'd love to have you there. And I'd love for you to bring some people with you. I think this is going to be a great weekend, and I can't wait to share it with you. Let's pray.